at doing intros. Welcome to Random Badassery, all of you creative beasts and monsters in the world. I am Chad Hall, and my co-host is Lam Wen. Hello. And this is a show where we try to figure out what is creativity, how does it work, and how the hell can we leverage it to our benefit. <laughs> and this episode is the great, the far too prolific to... <laughs> not exhaust us, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I feel like that can be said of, of pretty much every, with the exception of Murakami, actually. Murakami was not that prolific, but his work is just so in, just dense <laughs> that it feels like it is. Yeah, you just throw like two of those long books in. and Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's <laughs> monstrous. Like it, there might not be a lot of things, but the things, mm. some of them are massive. Yeah, um, I feel like I feel like I've read a few of his books more than more than two or three times, and I still don't entirely understand them. So, and that actually brings up something that we, you and I were talking about the other day that um, I find interesting. I hope it's kind of the same for all the listeners. That just because you know we're doing Neil Gaiman today doesn't mean that we've stopped thinking about Murakami and David Lynch and Bob Dylan and Ian McKellen and Isaac Asimov and who am I missing? There's one more in there. Murakami. I think I said that. Did you say well, Murakami? They can look at the list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When we don't even remember, there's a problem. And I, I think of that reticular activation system thing that I was talking about before, where once you see something and then you see it everywhere. Sure. That's definitely in effect. Like, you know, even going through the Neil Gaiman stuff, I found myself thinking about Murakami and thinking about Lynch. And I love that, that we're, we're building like this... Um, this neural pathway with all these branches going off into these different mm -hmm. artists. Yeah, it's almost like a creative wake. Um, and I feel like with, with, a, with certain guys like Neil Gaiman, for example, I feel like there's a certain part of me that's always wanted to do him on the podcast. And so because of that, I've, I've, I've had him lingering in the back of my mind. Like there are a couple of people like that. Like Tom Waits is still lingering in there as well. Um, oh, we missed Nick Cave. That's the one we didn't say. Um, yes. But yeah, so I definitely, I, I definitely feel like they they all linger in me as ghosts now. So um, it's it's great that that the exposure that we we or the 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 amount of stuff that we do for research basically um, pushes us forward towards understanding not just their creative processes, but even the, the 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 final products themselves with much more detail than we would have before. And you mentioned this in the last one, and we actually never got around to it because the conversation didn't lead that way. So uh, maybe we can do that right now. Why don't we talk a little bit about the process of what we do for these episodes? Um, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, actually. I'm, I've, I, it's funny that you and I have never actually discussed what our processes were for researching these guys. <laughs> yeah, we do it individually. This is the first time we're sharing it, so we're sharing it with you guys at the same time. So, Lamb, go ahead. Um, yeah, I guess this goes back to um, the original versions of our podcast where um, you and I would literally sit in a room and not have any idea what we were going to talk about and it would just flow. Um, so in a lot of ways, our research is very similar. Um, with a guy like Neil Gaiman, for example, I kind of go with the things I know first. Um, and so for, for me, it was diving back into Sandman um, and really, really taking a long, hard look at the creative process that led to him 
getting into Sandman in the first place, you know, his relationship with Alan Moore, um, all the stuff he did with Vertigo, um, his relationship with probably one of my favorite mixed media artists of all time and Dave McKeon. Um, so I started there. I started with what I knew. Um, and then I went into the stuff that I didn't quite know so well, you know, a lot of his novels. Um, I feel like when it comes to how we approach Neil Gaiman, I have a feeling that you went more into his novels, um, more quickly. And I went more into his comic, comic book work more quickly. Um, and then after, you know, after a, sh a short stint with, uh, refreshing myself on what the, the, the comic books were all about, I dove hard into the novels, which I still think do not get nearly as much love as they deserve for how unique they are. Um, especially in dealing with certain themes like modern mythology and understanding, um, you know, how, how modern mythology is affected, not just by culture and society, but by, by the, the ancient thoughts of what they're supposed to be, the principles that guided those mythologies. Um, so yeah. Um, and then after all of that stuff, I started to dive into the man himself, um, understanding what his influences were, how he grew up, where he grew up, what made him so interested in the medium itself, um, both for comic books as well as novels. Um, and yeah, so that, that was it for me. I feel like for me, every time I research one of these guys, it's very, very different. Uh, like with Bob Dylan, for example, I, I was much more curious about his life than I was about his work. Um, frankly, because a lot of his work I really didn't like. There was, there's, there are just eras of Bob Dylan that just still to this day really bug me. <laughs> and, and I have a hard time listening to, to some of his work. Um, so I was very interested in the man. Um, you know, so he, he's always been kind of an enigma to me. So I dove into him as a person first before I dove into his work. So what about you? What's your process for understanding these guys? Well, first, let me ask you a question. So when you're, when you say you're diving into stuff beyond, beyond the works, obviously you're going to go to the works where they are. Um, where are you looking for this stuff? What do you like specifically give, I mean, like, are you looking just random Google searches? Are you going to Wikipedia? Um, I'm, I'm just curious what your process is. Um, when it comes to looking at their work, like with Neil Gaiman, for example, obviously his work exists all over the place, um, you know, in comic book form when it comes to the Sandman series, um, or, you know, any of the novels, like I, I have a copy of Good Omens, um, as well as American Gods. Um, so for me, that was where researching the work was pretty easy because I know the work pretty well. Um, where it became difficult was looking for things like um, you know, interviews that he had done or YouTube. So basically my, my, my modes of attack were, were, um, opening up a browser window and diving through either Google or YouTube to find things that, that, that have him somewhere in them. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty general. I mean, I feel like I researched it the way most people would research an essay or some kind of, some kind of research paper. Um, outside of consuming the work itself, uh, research is pretty straightforward. Typically for me, what I do is obviously same thing as you. I start with, I look with what I know, which usually the reason I start there for me is, is because I already own it. Sure. Um, you know, like for Neil Gaiman, I had 43 issues of, of Sandman in comiXology. So mm -hmm. that's the first place I started, went back there. Um, I had American Gods that I had bought in iBooks. I actually just barely started that today. So I didn't even get, because I got, I spent so much time in um, Sandman, just going back through it. It's hard to leave that world. Um, and I've never even finished Sandman. Like I said, I only bought 43 of them. So I have like 30 more issues to go. Um, and then what else did I, oh, and then I, I had my, um, it just happened at the same time that we decided to do this episode. I think it's because his new book, Norse Mythology, just came out. Mm, um, yeah. But his book of short, one of his books of short fiction, Trigger Warning, 
was on sale on Kindle. So I bought that and that's what I went into second. Um, then after I, like, like you said, after you go through like some of the source material, usually what I do is the first thing I will do is I go into the Apple podcast app and I search for the artist's name and I find other people talking about that artist, interviews with that artist, anything that comes up in there. The reason I use the Apple podcast app to do that is because it's the only one with comprehensive search of episodes. Um, all the other ones only search podcasts themselves, the, you know, like the, the shows. They don't actually search and index the episodes. So I'll find those, and then I'll actually load those episodes into Overcast, and I'll just filter those through my normal podcast listening. Um, I would think I went through like six different podcast episodes on Neil Gaiman, most of which I'll include in the show notes. Um, then after I go through podcasts, usually then my next stop is YouTube. See if I can find interviews or anything interesting that comes up with their name in YouTube. And then usually my last stop is Google. And I don't usually just search for their name. I usually search for their name and the word creativity because I want to see how, how they speak about creativity. So if I can mm -hmm. find interviews, um, actually I, had meant to read something today that I found yesterday on Neil Gaiman and I didn't even get a chance to read it. And it's a, his interview with the Paris review, which is almost always an outstanding interview from authors if they're with the Paris review. So I feel, I feel a little lacking not having read that, but that's mm -hmm. usually my train of work. And then as I'm doing that, I usually take some just random notes of interesting things that might spark a uh, conversation while we're here. And mm -hmm. I just tape that up while we're talking, and then I glance over it every once in a while so that we never have a long dead space, even though we've never, ever, ever had that problem. <laughs> that is, yeah, I, I highly doubt that will ever be an issue. I mean, if anything, you and I have said this in the past with other episodes, if anything, we we feel like we have to cut it short because even with, you know, a guy like Neil Gaiman, for example, I feel like we might get through 30% of what we want to talk about. Might. <laughs> oh, it's, it's insane. I mean, he's got, I would say, I'm looking at the list right now. I'd say that's about approximately 20 books. Yeah. Um, that's not including the 13 children's books he's written. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not including the decades and decades of comic book work. This is just, we're talking novels, a couple nonfiction books, a couple short stories, books, collections. And... Not to mention he's done five or six film uh, – well, he's written and directed a few things, and some are just adaptations of his work. And yeah. same with television. Like the American, American Gods is a TV show that's coming out this year. He did voice acting at some point. Do you know for what? I couldn't find that. I know he was in an episode of The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. But he, um, he, did, he did some voice work somewhere else too, and I've been trying to track that down. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't run across anything about that. But mm. the fact that he was in The Simpsons is proof that he's made it. <laughs> well, that's that's any that's that's probably a bucket list item for both of us. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like um, number one. Do you have your own Wikipedia page? Cool. Now you're sure. a grade C celebrity. If you if you make it to The Simpsons, you're a grade <laughs> A. <laughs> sure. Um, I, I think that. We've mentioned Sandman a few times, and I think that for the most part, we're probably going to focus on that a lot in this episode, just because uh, in a lot of ways, it's impossible to divorce Neil Gaiman from Sandman. Um, for those who don't know, Sandman was a comic 
that uh, Neil Gaiman did for almost two decades. Actually, technically, he's still writing it because it's back. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how frequently he's doing that because I haven't seen any of the new stuff. But the base, basically, Sandman as a character exists both in Marvel and DC as two different characters. Um, this was originally a reference to the DC character, the Sandman, which was a guy who was in a suit, wore a gas mask, and shot a gun that had like this dust and put people to sleep. But mm -hmm. it was kind of like a not very popular character. So Neil Gaiman came along and they said, here, you, you can use the name Sandman. Don't worry about anything we've done with the character before. Do whatever you want. So mm -hmm. he basically said, I don't want to use that character. I just want the name. <laughs> so he took the idea and he took uh, the the myth mythological idea of Morpheus. The the you know, He calls them the Eternals in the comic. They're death and desire and they're they're like not gods they're like above gods they're ideas yeah they're aspects people. yeah and uh so this he's dream he is sleep they're all d's um and he it, there's in the first issue there's one brief moment where you see the original sandman um and that, i guess that was just a nod to the lineage there um but basically, he had free reign to do whatever he wanted, and he wove what is quite possibly, at least in the world of comics, one of the most um, epic and far-reaching and interweaving um, story, at least until the point that he did it, that had ever been done. Um, Alan Moore would probably punch me in the face for saying that, but I don't care. I actually think Alan Moore would agree with you. Uh, and I think they were great friends, so that that they they did quite a, a couple of projects together as well. So they um, sued each other. Yeah, until so they sued the crap out of each other. But I think that the biggest the, the biggest thing that 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 made me so interested in Sandman was um, you know, I just I'm just thinking about my history with comic books, and I used to be a big comic book guy. Um, I was much more Marvel than DC, um, and I was into the X Men. I was into you know um, that that the storylines that came out of that. I just felt like they were more real and gritty. Um, but all of that changed when I read Sandman, uh, Sandman to me, because I was, I was, you know, the, during that age, I was, I was that young, pompous, full of piss and vinegar kind of guy. Um, and I, I loved that I read books and hated that other people didn't. And I feel like the nice thing about Sandman is that it gave me a sense of, of literary prowess and skill that I'd never, ever seen in a comic book. And so because of that, um, I gravitated to the series and latched onto it pretty hard. I, I, I actually scoffed at most of what was happening in the DC world until Sandman. And then I realized how big of an idiot I was and how, how amazing some of the DC work actually was. Um, but Sandman in and of itself is responsible for uh, Vertigo, which is a division of, of DC being what it is. Um, it was the flagship title and it, it, it gained Vertigo a, a level of notoriety um, and clout in the comic book world that nothing prior to it even got close to. So it's kind of amazing. And, and just to be clear too, that's probably part of the reason he was given so much um, latitude was sure. it was in an imprint. It wasn't, uh, it originally didn't even come out with the DC logo. Now they put him out with the DC logo. Um, so it was, it was kind of like hidden under this other imprint, right? So if it didn't do well or wasn't as popular, they could just go and it wasn't really, it didn't stain their reputation. So they they didn't really have any skin in the game on the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that is a, a lot of luck on his part that he had that opportunity. And to be clear, this wasn't 
the first place that he popped up. Um, he'd already done three or four Batmans, which is kind of a big deal. Um, and what else did he have done before that? Uh, actually, I think Batman was one of the only big ones. Everything else was kind of small before yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, he'd done a few comic strips. I think the, the um, uh, Future Shocks was one. Uh, I remember seeing that. Uh, I think, um, yeah, it, he'd done a few other uh, singular projects, too, with, like, Dave McKeon, you know, Violent Cases, uh, Signal to Noise, and the Tragical Comedy and Comical Tragedy of Mr. Punch, which is still one of my favorite pieces of work of all time. That was later, um, though, right? Oh, uh, yes, that one was later. I'm sorry. Um, but, yeah, so he, he's done uh, a few other things, too, as well, but he's obviously best known for his, his run, his 75-issue run on uh, Sandman. Yeah, if we're going to look at, like, the big... The big ones, and, and what's weird is I was looking, I felt like there was stuff missing, but I couldn't place what was missing. But there's the stuff he did on Batman. That's a huge step for him as a comic book creator. Then sure. Sandman, which is huge. And a lot of these things are happening concurrently. Then there was the Miracle Man run. Yep. Um, and then there was a Tragical Comedy or Comical Tragedy of Mr. Punch. Um, and then the, the few issues that he did with Spawn, which led to more drama. <laughs> yeah, he also did a run with uh, Swamp Thing, too, as, as well. I remember that. I didn't see that in the Wikipedia, which was weird. I thought so, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he he took over for it at some point. Um, I, I, You know why? I think it's because he originally was supposed to be a part of um, the Swamp Thing series, but he didn't have enough editorial control, and so because of that, he backed out. I think that's why you never saw it. Because yeah. I, I don't think he ever actually ended up doing it. And and for everybody listening, you if you've if you're new, you don't know this. Everybody else that's been around knows this. This is not an informational podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely true. This is a conversation about somebody that we found fascinating that we studied for a month. We're sharing some of the information that we remember. Um, we are not a Wikipedia page. This is this is about creativity. We want to study um, what we can learn from him. And there is a lot. Actually, we've done a lot of people that I have an extreme amount of respect for. Um, but for some reason, um, this particular episode inspired me more than any of our other episodes. And actually, before we continue, I just want to say really quick, thank you to all the new listeners of the last episode, the new format that we did. Um, it's already our number three episode, Lamb. It's um, by the end of the week. It may be our number two episode huh. uh, after Murakami. Um, for some reason, our Murakami episode is massive. Which is weird because I thought that would be our least popular episode. I think it might have something to do with um, Google search indexing. Uh, gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. That might be the episode that shows up first. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm fine with it. <laughs> yeah, totally uh, okay with that. <laughs> but anyways, uh, the thing that I found interesting, since we're kind of we're jumping around a lot here, and like I said, it's not an informational podcast, so um, good luck pulling a chronology out of this. One of the first things that he did in 1984, you and I talked about this briefly earlier, is he wrote a book called Duran Duran, The First Four Years of the Fab Five. Mm. <laughs> and it was a book that he wrote for money, not because he was a huge Duran Duran fan, though I haven't found anything saying that he didn't like them. But um, he did say that he wrote it for money, and that was one of the first big creative lessons he learned was never to write anything for money. Because he wrote the book for money, never ended up getting paid, and the company that um, hired him to write the book fell apart before it was really pushed out. So most people didn't even see the book, and it was just a complete 
pile of poo in his hands. Huh. I I still need just for just for 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 sheer morbid interest. I need to find that thing and read it. I I want to get a good laugh in there. And also, uh, I'm not going to put links to all of his works in the notes. You guys can look them up individually. This is the links in the below will just be other things that we're talking about. I mean, you could literally you could literally just go to his website and find everything we're talking about when it comes to his work, anyway. Right, and you know, I don't want the show notes to be you know, just scroll the screen twelve times to get to the bottom. Sure, because <laughs> he's got a lot of stuff here. Um, after that, he did a book in 1985 called Ghastly Beyond Belief. It was a joint effort. And from I couldn't really f- find out much of what it was, but the best description I found of it was that it was a collection of bad quotes from sci-fi films. Yeah. So I'm not sure what that means. After that, in 1988, he did uh, Don't Panic, Guide to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And... I kind of feel like all three of those books might be books that he did for money. Um, but uh, after that was when things really started to gel for him. Comic books was comic book was his way that he found his voice. Yeah. And I think from that, it kind of, it kind of led to uh, after those three, uh, whatever you want to call them uh, mistakes and they're not mistakes. I mean, every, every step that a writer takes in progressing their, their craft or career is, is never a mistake if you learn from them and, and, and evolve. Uh, but right after that is one of my favorite pieces from him, which is good omens. Um, that one's, that one's still high on my list. The joint effort with him and writer Terry Pratchett. Yep. And Terry Pratchett almost deserves his own episode. <laughs> I've never read anything by him, so that would be an interesting episode. Huh. I, I actually think it'd be a good idea for us to do that at some point, is to pick some, pick an artist that is well-respected, that neither of us know anything about. Oh, like Barbara Streisand. Yeah, yeah. Like something totally <laughs> weird. Someone totally off the wall. Sorry, sure. that was in my head because I've been listening to that podcast, um, Missing Richard Simmons. Uh-huh. About um, you know Richard Simmons, the guru, um, health guru, um, sweat, sweating with the oldies. Anyways, he disapp- He was a super public figure, and in the last, like in 2014, completely disappeared from public life to the point where people weren't even sure if he was alive anymore. Wow, so that's on that's on my mind. That's a podcast to check out, guys. Um, anyhow, back to Neil Gaiman. Sorry, I'm uh, caffeinated and I'm diverging a lot today. Uh, what I think before we go any further, what is really interesting is something that you just said that I want to dive into a little bit more. I think this is a problem that writers have, but I think that um, artists of any sort probably suffer from this as well. And this would probably be our first lesson from Neil Gaiman is people think they have to come out of the gate uh, with a masterpiece or something like that, um, that they're afraid to make their first thing. They're afraid to write their first book. Because they're not ready. They're not good enough. And it, it prevents them from creating anything. And nobody ever, ever should do that. Because here's, here's the thing. Let's say you do write something that's really great. That's really amazing right out of the gate. Now you've got the problem of having to live up to that with your second thing. And you're an unskilled writer. You've only written one thing. So you set yourself up in a situation that's going to cause you failure later. You got to look at everything as, like Lamb said, a step on on a ladder or a movement up a step. Or as Neil Gaiman says himself, he says, being a writer was a mountain in the distance. And every action that he did, he said, does this take me closer to that mountain? 
Um, and if it did, he would do it. If it didn't, he wouldn't. He didn't ask, is this the mountain? Am I on the mountain? When he's way back in the town, he just wanted to know if he was moving towards the mountain. Sure. And everything you create is a step towards the mountain. And it, your job is to get better, not to, to stay amazing. Your job is to always get better. And I feel like with all things, it's not even just creatively, but I mean, if we're extending this podcast to, to anything that requires people to use their creative brains to, to build something, um, you know, it, it, if you take any successful person in the world, um, including the most successful, I assume that they spend their time making more mistakes than they are succeeding. Um, and, and every single mistake that they make is a, an opportunity to learn. You know, if we look at Gaiman's life, um, for most of the 80s, for example, he was doing you know, book reviews and, and, and interviews for, for various publications. So, I mean, you've got to hone your craft somehow because there's, there's no way to get good unless you, you practice it getting good. <laughs> and that's one of the things that he, he did this fantastic commencement speech, which I will put into the show notes, at the University of Arts in 2012. Pretty much everything he says in, in it is um valuable nugget to pull out. But one thing he specifically says is about mistakes, and he encourages people uh, yeah. uh -huh. to make mistakes. Because yeah. make, making mistakes means that you're actually doing things. And and that's that's another thing that I noticed about him is um he says he says in here, he says, for example, he was writing a letter and he misspelled the word Caroline. And what he ended up was with the, is the name Coraline, which didn't exist. And he said, that's interesting. And that little grain became the book Coraline. Mm -hmm. And that, that's something that he just seems to be a master of is using failure, using um, random inspirations, using uh, aspects of his life, just finding little grains and growing them. And this goes back to what we've said about Murakami and what we said about David Lynch with Catching the Big Fish. Use a little fish to catch the bigger fish. And so, I mean, what do you think about that, Lamb? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with it. Um, it's, it's, I, I think of the people that I, that, that we know, um, you know, because it's easy to talk about a lot of these bigger guys, like, you know, all of our, our heroes artistically. But I think about the people that we know, including you and I, who, who have had our, 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 our good and our bad with our creative processes and our good, our, our good and our bad with our, our, um, respective projects. And I feel like even to this day, I can't help, but, but remember all of the lessons that I learned from all of my failures. And, and, you know, this applies not just to me as an artist, but it applies to me as a person too, as well. Um, every, every opportunity that I've had to learn has always come from a mistake or has always come from a failure of some kind. So uh, that, that commencement speech, by the way, is something that, that I also wanted to talk about. It's funny. That's in my notes as well, but I, I, I encourage everyone to 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 take notes from that. I mean, yeah, the one thing I really do like about um, Neil Gaiman over a lot of the other um, authors of, of of his fame, I guess, is that he's very good at explaining things in a very simple way. Um, and I think there's always there's you know he explains complex ideas in a very simple narrative or a very simple structure. Um, and I think there's a part of me that, that really loves that about him. So, um, you know, there's a succinctness to his message. Yeah, he revels in in a intricate simplicity, which is a weird thing to say. Um, but what I mean by that is just even like you look at his ideas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he says in there when you're when you're writing. Um, first of all, one of the things that came to me while we were listening or while we were studying for this episode was uh, how unimportant ideas are. 
Everybody thinks that. <laughs> that it, it sounds like a crazy thing to say, but everybody, when they're focused on creativity, they're like, I got to have a good idea. I have to have a good idea. No, you don't. All you need is a, a, a crappy idea that you elaborate on and you put effort into. It's the execution that matters, not the idea. There are hundreds and thousands, if not millions, of brilliant ideas for novels that never get written. But the ones that get written, when you boil them down, most of them are simple at their core. And Neil Gaiman is one of those specifically. He says, that, like, people ask him all the time, where do you get ideas? He says, I get ideas everywhere. Like, ideas are a dime a dozen. It doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. He says, I get ideas from asking myself questions like, what if? Um, what if, uh, what if a, a goldfish got bit by a werewolf? Oh, I got a story. Cool. Um, or he, he says, if only this would happen. Or I wonder what would happen if this happened. Or wouldn't it be interesting if this happened? And that's all he needs is that little grain. The idea is not important. It's what he does with it. And when you really look at everything that he's created, it really all boils down to one simple question, almost every work. American Gods came from him saying, what happens to all the old gods when people move to America? That's where the idea came from. Yeah, it's really funny that you say that because it's one of the things that I, you know, the, the, the idea thing. Um, just because I, I have this, this, interesting, this interesting phenomenon happens when you try to talk to someone about Neil Gaiman. Um, if you try to explain one of his novels to somebody, it almost sounds insane. It almost sounds, it sounds dumb. Sounds stupid. Yeah, yeah, it sounds stupid. Like I mean, the American Gods, for example, um, you know, basically is 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 it's not just the idea of old gods coming or what happens to old gods after people move to America and people start believing in things like technology and stuff like that. But what would the gods then do to try to reinsert themselves back into life? Um, and you know, it, it depicts a lot of the gods as these petty. Um, you know, self-righteous entities that are just trying to fight their way back into people's minds and, and, and consciousness. So, you know, trying to explain that to somebody is, is pretty tough without, without having the narrative to go along with it. So I completely agree with you. Like the, the execution of, of the storytelling is, is what defines that story for what it is and not the idea itself. And I think that that's maybe what inspired me so much in, about this particular episode, this particular person. Um, it's, it, it, it really is this idea of it's that easy. Don't make it something hard. Mm -hmm. Don't, I mean, it makes it all look easy because it is easy. It is easy to do it. What's hard is to get better. What's hard is to accept the failures. What's hard is to improve and to um, put the effort in and to obsess yourself with it. But the, the idea thing and all of this stuff, that's easy. It really is. I, mm -hmm. I've got a jury summons that's, that's stapled to the wall here, right, um, to my cork board, you know, and right next to it, I have a notice that I sold an episode of my Watchmen um, comic on eBay. What happens if I put those two things together? I have a story. Maybe I'm on my way to that jury summons and I, you know, I need to sell that Watchmen comic before I go because I don't have a way to get there. I've got a story. That's all mm -hmm. you need. It's sure. that simple. What you do with it, how you breathe life into those characters, how you focus on what that story means, that's what makes a book good. That's what makes a book great. It, or any other creative thing. You know, the painting, I, I, like me, I paint self-portraits. That's not a brilliant idea. Hundreds and thousands of artists have done it before. It's about the execution. It's about what I learn when I do it. It's about what happens. It's not about the subject. It's my face every time. Whoop-de-doo. And, sure. and that's, 
that's one of the things that he says in 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 one of his uh, articles. You know, once again, like combine two things. You, you don't know what to do. Combine two things, and that's something that I've um, I read in Twyla Tharp's um, The Creative Habit, which is a great book for anyone who hasn't read it. Um, she says the same thing in Hollywood. That's all you need is combine two things. Like the what was that movie, The Edge? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, well, what if we have two guys in the woods? Not a very interesting story. What if there's a bear? Boom. Now you have a story. The end. Um, there's a great French film called uh, Le Fils sur le Pont, which means The Girl on the Bridge. And that movie has been in my mind for probably 15 years because that's the first time that I learned that you can make something out of combining two things. Um, the basis of the story is there's a girl on a bridge about to jump into the water and kill herself. While she's on the bridge getting ready to jump, a knife lands on the banister right next to her hand. The knife has come from a man who is a knife thrower in a traveling carnival. He's looking for a girl that he can spin on the wheel and throw knives at. So now you've got two things. Combine them. He says to the girl, you're already going to kill yourself? What if you loan yourself to me for a couple months so I can throw knives at you? Now you have a movie. And... Just those simple things. That's that's all creativity is, is exactly what we talked about in our last episode. You got thesis, antithesis, smash them together, synthesis. You create something new. Yeah, I mean, if you're... Are, I'm sorry, go ahead. Ideas are a dime a dozen. Yeah, I mean, if you take... Um, I, the, the, if you take Good Omens, for example, which is still one of my favorite stories from Neil Gaiman um, slash Terry Pratchett. Um, is that right? Did I say his name right? Did I just mess yes. that up? Um but yeah, the the so the apocalypse is coming. What if the you know the, the the two the two introduction or the two introductory characters are you know um, Aziraphale? I, I I I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Um, and Crowley um, are you know the respective um, representatives for heaven and hell on earth. Well, what if they're friends? <laughs> and what if they're living comfortable lives? And what if they don't want the apocalypse to come? I think you know the smashing of those ideas together makes makes it so that the, just the the introduction of the story it's, itself provokes thought. And I think that that's the magic of being able to take two things like that, or take three things, or ten things, or whatever it may be that seemingly have nothing to do with each other, and asking the very simple question of what if they did have some something to do with each other. You know, how would that change the way the narrative is written or how would we ch- that change the way we understand these things as they are? And I think there's a magic to that. There's an amazing skill in being able to take those things and weave them together, almost in a tongue-in-cheek kind of sense. It's 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 a very childish way to look at ideas. You know, as we as we become adults, we compartmentalize things more and more. And I think as artists, the thing that 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 makes you creative, the thing that allows you to be creative is the ability to take those compart those those walls between the compartments and just rip them down. And uh that's something that there's a there's this great book that other people should pick up as well called What What It Is or What Is It? Hold on, it's right here. What it is. <laughs> we, are, we are definitely not an informational podcast. <laughs> I always get it confused. It's either what it is or what it is and what it is it. Sure. Um but it is what it is because it's on the shelf in front of me by a woman called Linda Berry. Um Linda Berry is a cartoonist, author, um, She's best friends with, um, what's his name, uh, Matt Groening, who created The Simpsons. Um, 
But basically, she says in there, she asks similar questions. You know, like you said, it's a childish thing, these ideas. And we, we think that's wrong. Like, we have to mature past that. But what she says in this book, she's talking about herself. And she says, at what point when we're, create, when we're drawing, she's talking about um, visual arts. She says, at what point in our life when we're drawing do we start asking ourselves, is it good? Mm. Does it matter? It's drawing. The purpose of drawing is to draw. Well, at what point do we begin to judge it and decide that we need to judge whether it is good? Because it, we, we've touched on this briefly before, but I think this is the first time it's truly come to head, is creativity is something that is childish, and it should stay that way because that's what kids are really good at. They live in a creative world at all times. I think in, in the commencement speech, isn't that something Neil Gaiman says? Yeah, that, I remember that actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. he res the, who he respects most in the world is children. Sure. Because they're, they're always in the act of creation. And I think it also, it, it also goes to, to, to the thing that I said earlier, which is it almost feels like everything he's writing um, is written in such a way that a 10-year-old, I mean, you know, albeit a, a fairly intelligent 10-year-old, would understand it. You know, there's a simplicity to his storytelling that's really phenomenal. There's, 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 there's a magic to the way that he carves these stories in such simple ways that, that just makes him unique in that sense. You know, there's, there seems to almost be um, uh, a, a lack of arrogance, like a, a true humility in how he tells these stories because it, it sounds like he's trying to explain them to children, which probably explains why he has so many, so many children books or adult books that are, are seen through the eyes of, of, of children, like the, the tragical comedy and comical tragedy of Mr. Punch is very much that way. You know, it's very much a, a structure of a kid's storybook, but it's, you know, with very adult themes. So there's, there's, there's a magic to that as well. And I think that one of his true gifts is uh, all of his writing is superbly humane. And what I mean by that is every character is real and uh, he doesn't approach these stories with... Uh, a judgmental attitude, um, you know, this person is this bad person, this person's a good person, and put them in the pockets. He really tries to understand every character that he creates. And one of the things that I, when I was going through some of the podcasts, I don't remember who was mentioning it, I think it might have been on the Wizard and the Bruiser one. Um, he was, I didn't know this, but Sandman was hugely popular with college girls. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first times in history that something in the comic book world was huge among women. And I don't mean that there weren't women reading comics before, but I mean among women as a whole, women who weren't reading comics before suddenly were. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the way he steps into these characters. He didn't write women characters that were condescending. He didn't write uh, stereotypical women that were weak or that were bitchy. He wrote humans that happened to be female. And, and women responded to that, and of course men did as well. But that, that says a lot about the thought that he puts into this. The story, the idea, that's kind of important. But the life, the life within the book, that's where his real work is. That's where his real magic lies. And that's a lesson for us all to learn is don't worry about what you're painting. Worry about the brushstroke. Yeah, and the, the two great examples of what you're talking about. If if, if no one um, has seen these, I mean, it's. I'm sorry, that was a, a, a weird collection of words that got smashed together in my brain because I feel like I'm trying <laughs> to say three things at once. Um, but DC's Secret Origins, he wrote a backstory on Poison Ivy. Um, that's really interesting, and 
for me, one of my favorite characters of all time um, in, in the Sandman series and just in general is um, um, the older sister of Morpheus, who is Death. Um, and, and Death is a fascinating character for anyone um, who, who hasn't had a chance to, to read any of that. There's, there's a couple of, of, of Death-specific stories out there. Um, the Higher Cost of Living is one. Um, or the high cost of living, I'm sorry. So I definitely agree with that because it, to me, they never felt like they were written from a woman's perspective or a man's perspective, that they were just written from a person's perspective. And I think that that's really fascinating. And that explains a lot too about his relationship with his current wife, Amanda Palmer, um, who is also this amazingly humane person. I can see, like when you see the two of them together, all you can think is, of course. Um, they sure. don't, they, they, <laughs> there's something about, I don't know what to say is, um, something about Neil Gaiman that is, um, inoffensive. And I don't mean that, um, he doesn't have guts. He doesn't take risks. I mean that because of that rootedness and that humanity that there, it's hard to be mad or upset with him ever. <laughs> you You can almost sense that he, th there's a kindness to him. Um, that, that's really unique and you can, you can not just see it in his work, but you see it in his general demeanor in his commencement speech, in his many interviews. Um, there's always a sense of, of kindness and humility, um, that, that, that just kind of encompasses the man. So I totally agree with you. And it, I mean, it's easy to associate that with, um, this British ideal of, you know, oh, of course, you know, it's the stiff upper lip button down, but that's not what we're talking about here. It's something very unique. And if you have read Neil Gaiman, you might have an idea what we're talking about. But if you've never seen him speak, go and watch this commencement speech. It's probably the only video that I'm going to put below because it's so good and it's mm -hmm. so important that I, I, I would almost like supplant half of our episode here just for you guys to go listen to that. Like if you skip the rest of this episode and never listened to it and instead went and watched that commencement speech right now, I'd be totally happy. Yeah. Um, because that's going to give you just as much information about the man as a person and about his creativity. I mean, that whole speech is to inspire creativity. Um, in a way, he wrote this episode for us. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not following the script. Yeah, I, I completely, uh, um, I almost missed the commencement speech. I actually didn't find that until this morning. Um, so I, I watched it. I, I watched it as uh, I was leaving the house. Um, and it's been kicking around in my brain for most of the morning. But I, 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 there's a part of me that almost wished that I had more time to let it wash over me um, because there's so many brilliant nuggets in there about creativity and why it's important to, to not just success as an artist, but just success in general. Um, and there's, there's a magic to the way that he presents it that I think only a guy like Neil Gaiman can um, in how succinct and how simple they are. How, how simple the ideals are, but how critically important they are to living a creative and happy life. And I think that, you know, we're, we're building him up here a lot, but there's a reason um, for that is that that sense of humility, that sense of um, humanity that he has, that is essential to productive creativity. If you are wrapped up in your own ego you're not going to write as much. You're not going to um, succeed as well. You know, there are, there are exceptions. Um, Alan Moore is crazy uh, <laughs> and completely wrapped up in himself. 
Um, but maybe not egotistical. I mean, he's just, he's wild. He's a wild man. But um, the reason I say that is, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, is this idea of when you're when you're a beginning, hopefully this only happens in the beginning stage. Some people carry it through their whole creative life. But when you're at the beginning stage, it's very easy for you to to make something and to assume that this is the best. This is the best thing. And then when somebody reads it and they have a question or somebody gives you a criticism, that you fall apart or you fly into a rage. Uh, that's your ego. That's your insecurity. Um, and that ego and that insecurity prevents you from getting better. Um, criticisms that people give you aren't always going to be right. But if you can't, at the very least, look at what they said and ask that question honestly yourself about it and come up with an honest answer, then you will never improve. You will never get better. Because sometimes people are right, um, especially when it comes to writing. When, you're, when somebody says, I don't get what's going on here, you might have failed. You, you might have made a confusing scene. What, what do you do? Like he said, remember where the mountain is. What's going to get you a step closer to that mountain? T saying that that person doesn't know what they're talking about or fixing it. Mm. So, so letting go of that ego is essential, and everybody has it. Everybody has it. And it is the biggest obstacle to all of us. Everybody I know that isn't creating as much, including myself, that isn't, isn't creating as much as they want to, is in some way wrapped up in their own head. And we, we tend to think of egotism as um, an idea of self-love, but no, egotism is wrapped up in yourself. Even if it's self-loathing, that's egotism. You're sure. wrapped up in yourself. And until you can get out of yourself and get into other people, to care about other people, to create characters that are humane, that are outside of yourself, to hear feedback from others, you will never progress as an artist, plain and simple. It, it's funny that you say that because recently uh, I've been taking a lot more pictures. Um, and I feel like I, I'm, I'm able to do so because I'm not taking them for me necessarily. I'm taking them to share. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to my photojournalistic roots and taking pictures of events um, that are, you know, especially with the political climate, I, I'm, I'm capturing as much of it as I can on both sides of the equation. Um, and I feel like in the act of doing that, I forget about myself. I, I leave the criticisms at the door. I don't care whether people like them or not. It's about doing it, and it's about the process of doing it, and it's about, it's about finding ways to share it. And, and I think that, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. There's, there's, there's such an importance to that. There's such, there's such a clear, a clear difference between doing something for the sake of doing it versus doing something for yourself. And, you know, like we, we say consistently on this show and in every, pretty much every podcast we say it once, so I might as well just say it now, which is art is inherently generous or creativity is inherently generous. And I feel like in the, the, the act of taking these pictures, I've unintentionally proven that to myself. And I'm having that realization as we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think at this point we need to make some kind of, maybe we'll make a phone screensaver <laughs> for people that says yeah. that. <laughs> it's almost becoming the slogan of the show. But, hey, if that's all people take out of this, that's a great cool thing to take. That. Yeah, I'm totally okay with that too. Art is inherently art is inherently generous. That's an, that's that's such a simple but amazing concept um, for anyone who is worried about creativity or worried about producing something perfect or worried about whatever. It doesn't matter because if you don't make it, you're not sharing anything. So who cares? Just do yes. it. <laughs> you're, you're hoarding it to yourself. Creativity is inherently generous. We will say it five times this episode now. Uh, <laughs> 
Because we, I want to hammer that point because I think it is so important. And, and Neil Gaiman is a perfect example of that. And I would say up to this point, every single artist that we've covered, and maybe I will go as far as to say any artist we cover, that will be the message that comes out of it because that's what makes them great. Um, it's easy to get caught up in this idea of me, 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 me. Um, and, I, and I don't mean in, in what, I, what I'm referring to is this idea of when you put something online now, we have to worry about, oh, how many likes did it get? How many views of oh, the video? How many watches did it get? That's driving you back to yourself. It's driving you back to yourself outside of yourself. I put up a cartoon that I drew in the shower the other day. I got like seven likes. I don't care. You know what? It was funny to me. And seven other people, at least one of them thought it was funny. Maybe six of them were kind. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't matter. None of that matters. Going back to what I said from Linda Berry, too. At what point do we start asking ourselves, is it good? Some things need to be created just because they need to be created. And that's why it's inherently generous. You're sharing an act of creation. And sometimes what you have to share is failure. Sure. And, and we all do plenty of that, you know, like it's, 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 it's weird to throw those out there. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, for all of us as artists, we, we produce things that, that we are not necessarily that proud of. Um, but the, the, the magic to it, like, I mean, especially like, you know, the, the thing that I was doing on our Instagram, for example, these 60 second sketches, they're not the best drawings in the world. They were just fun things to do that were creative. Um, and in my, my, my spare time at my work, I, I was, I, I, I wanted something to do that was creative. So I challenged myself to draw as much as I could in 60 seconds. And some of the results have been just a lot of fun, um, beyond, beyond being good or bad pictures. I'm sure I could draw much better things if I took hours to do it, but that's not the point. The point was to keep myself continually doing something um, and I think that, that 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 that's that's where the key is especially when it comes to creativity and what we talk about with Neil Gaiman um, and a lot of the artists that we've talked about on this podcast which is they are just absolutely prolific absolutely prolific and they just never ever stop <laughs> and one of those things about being prolific too is you don't have time to sit around and ask those stupid questions that we all ask ourselves is it good enough is this, you know, Neil Gaiman, I don't remember what book it was. Um, it might have been American Gods. Sorry. Once again, not an informational podcast. Um, but he said that he had the idea and he said, I'm not good enough to write this. So he sat on it for years and did other stuff. And then he went back to it and he worked on a little bit here and there and kept telling himself, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And then finally he says, I'm never going to be good enough. So why don't I just write it as I am? Mm. And I guarantee you, whichever one it was, if it was American Gods, which I think it was. Oh, no, it was a graveyard book. That's what uh, it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's one of his masterpieces. And he didn't think he was good enough. So number, that's, that's another lesson to be learned, too, is you might think you're not good enough. You might think what you're doing is not good enough. But who are you to judge? You're just the creator. You're not uh, the audience. I loved the Graveyard book, by the way. Did you happen to read that yet? I haven't, but it sounds amazing. I know it's Tim, like Tim Ferriss' favorite audiobook. It's, it's, it's amazing. And it's actually, it's funny that you say that. In audiobook form, I found it to be better than um, the, the, the physical form. It's one, of the so, few, it's one of the few few pieces where I actually think that. <laughs> let me clarify. Um, as I understand it, it's basically the jungle book, but instead of a kid being raised by the jungle, he's raised by a graveyard. To a point, yeah, that's a, that's that's a pretty general. Uh, well, not not general, but that's that's loosely loosely it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it a, takes a lot more twists and turns than that, but absolutely, that's where it begins. 
It's a very Neil Gaiman explanation. <laughs> exactly. That's a great way of saying it. Yeah. I tried to come up with an esque type word using his name, but Gaiman esque is not. Well, Gaiman esque sounds pretty good. Gaiman esque is about right. It, yeah, it's almost like Roman esque. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I was drinking tea there. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I, 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 I don't get me wrong. I personally have a special place in my heart for Good Omens and American Gods, just because those were the first two. I, I literally read both of those kind of at the same time. Um, I finished Good Omens about halfway through American Gods, um, but the Graveyard book. As much as I love the other two, the Graveyard book is is will will always hold a special place in my heart because I personally think it's the best written of any of his books. Have you read any of his short fiction, like um, Angels and Visitation, Smoke and Mirrors? No, I missed all of that. I missed every single piece of those. I, 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 that was next on my list, and I just couldn't get to them. I, I went through all the novels and all the comic books and all that stuff, but I never got to those. I would say read Trigger Warning um, mm -hmm. for many reasons, but one reason is the same reason I would recommend any of his short fiction to anybody listening is because uh, I think in his short fiction you see – uh, the epitome of what we're talking about with him is this idea of here's an idea, let's roll with it. Because uh, instead of having to make a whole novel out of it, he's jumping from story to story. And there, he says in the introduction to Trigger Warning that um, you know he believes that great short um, short fiction anthologies should always have um, a connecting theme. And he knows that this book has no connecting theme; that it really is a hodgepodge. But that is one of the things that is so great about it. There's a short story in there called The Thin White Duke, which was one of the names for Dave, nicknames for David Bowie. It has nothing to do with David Bowie, but obviously that name for Bowie spurred an idea, and he creates like this idea of this intergalactic duke. Um, then you have a short story in there that is it's, it's a Doctor Who story. It's literally <laughs> just a, a Doctor Who story. Um, he wrote two episodes of Doctor Who, by the way, um, both um, in the Matt Smith era which I've, I'm, I'm actually a huge fan of the Matt Smith era. I feel like that Doctor Who was very much alive and animated. Yeah. Um, Doctor's Wife and Nightmare in Silver were the two he wrote. But this one is not one of them. This is actually just a separate short story. There's also a Sherlock Holmes story in here. And, Lamb, you need to read it. It's called um, Honey and Death, I think it's called, or something mm. with those two words. Yeah. The reason you need to read it is I'm pretty sure – that this short story was ripped off and made into Mr. Holmes. Huh. Because it's about 70% similar. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, he's, he's, he's eating honey to rejuvenate his memory. Uh-huh. Um, he's aged. It, he's retired. Um, there's a lot of similarities. I feel like you're just reading the synopsis for Mr. Holmes to me right now. <laughs> it's it's really like literally I wrote that down. I'm all is this Mr. Holmes? <laughs> Interesting. I would I it's it's I would love to see a lot more of his work adapted for film too though. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not. You know what I absolutely don't like um, is people who hold so true to source material that they can't accept the goodness of something that isn't the source material. Um, right. And and I would love to see some of his stuff. Like I would love to see, for example, a a, t a short TV series or a mini series um, about death. That would be fascinating to me. 
Um, well, you've got American Gods coming out this year. Yeah, that's true. American Gods is coming out, but but there's there's, I think death is a character and a story that we need in modern day, um, mm-hmm. especially with with the, the 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 questions about you know women's lib and all that kind of stuff. I I, I like her character so much. Um, because she, there's an innocence to her, but a, there's also a strength to her as well. I mean, obviously she's death. Um, that would translate really, really well into a TV series. I don't know. Maybe can, it's just me. It's amazing. Can you explain to me. that a little bit more for the people who don't know anything about her character? Oh, um, I actually think that there's. Sorry, I'm just glancing over this now. Um, there is talk of producing it into uh, a TV series. Wow. Good Lord. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Warner Independent. That. Yeah, Warner yeah. Independent is apparently working on it. Um, that was a Schrodinger's cat moment. It didn't exist or not exist until you thought of it. Yeah, until and I thought it about it. Oh, this is fascinating. <laughs> Guess who's uh, one of the film's uh, producers? Um, Guillermo del Toro. That should be interesting. They've been talking a lot about doing something together. There was an interview with um, Neil Gaiman. I think it's the... I'm going to put it in the notes, too. I think it's the... There's an Apple meet the author thing mm-hmm. um, where Neil Gaiman is talking. Uh, but he talks about the possibility of doing something with Guillermo. And his answer is, Guillermo is a very busy man. We are great friends and we would love to do something, but he is very busy. So mm-hmm. I'm glad they're finally getting around to it because that is a perfect pairing. And yeah. by the way, I watched Pacific Rim the other night. That movie is mediocre. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, that would be fascinating. But anyways, going back, can you explain a little bit more about her character for people who don't know anything about her and why you think that that um, would be valuable? For death, how do I, how do I, I mean, she's the older sister of Morpheus. Um, we've explained that. Um, and she's less of a guide and more of a supportive, consoling character um, to, to, to Morpheus. Um, in a way that's kind of hard to explain because she's she's there's there's a there's there's a plasticness to her um, that that is both innocence and apathy at the same time that I think is really fascinating and I think it really fits well um, for where we are in the world now um, and I would just love to see how her character interprets the people in the world becoming more like her um, and 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 unlike her so they're taking on a lot of her her. Her, her bad traits without taking on her good ones. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but there's there's an innocence to her that, that is very, very special to me when it comes to how her character was described um, in, in, in um, the higher cost of, the high cost of living is the one that I'm thinking of in particular. Um, so I think that if that were ever adapted into a movie, I don't really think it's right for a movie form. I think that, that there is definitely a sense of, of of narrative storytelling that can be better told episodically when it comes to how death approaches the world as it is now. Um, and I think that a story like that could be really, really interesting. I've always thought that um, the big mistake that Hollywood makes is trying to adapt novels into films uh, because you're, you're trying to condense too much. I, I feel like short stories are films and that, uh, like you're saying, novels are they're TV shows. They need that room to breathe and to grow and for the character to change and adapt. Um, like, for example, one of uh, it's not even that great of a movie, but one of my favorite authors is um, John Irving. Mm-hmm. And John Irving wrote a short story, which I can't remember the name of the short story right now. And they took not even the whole short story. They took part of the short story and they made a whole film out of that. It's called A Door, a door in the Floor. Um, I haven't even seen the movie. 
which is funny that I'm recommending it and putting it in show notes. <laughs> but I love that idea of understanding the medium and, and understanding what you can do in the space. Um, for example, uh, Neil Gaiman has a short story called How to Talk to Girls at Parties. That's being made into a film right now as well. Um, and, and going back a little bit to what you were saying about adaptation, I don't want to um, uh, pass over this or glance over this. It is important what you said to, it's really important to understand that idea of um, holding things true to the source material and uh, mm -hmm. not understanding that they need to change and grow. And a great example of that is Neil Gaiman. Um, he wrote Stardust. It's, it's a book. It's a novel. Um, they made that into a movie with um, Robert De Niro and I can't remember who else. And uh, apparently it wasn't a very good movie. He has never, ever criticized it. He's never said anything bad about it. It's just what those artists did. That was their art. His book was his art. And I think that's a very good point of view to have. And then also, um, I think it was when Coraline was being made into a film, the script was brought to him and he said, this is great. It's exactly my book. Take it back and rewrite it. Uh. Because your job is not to make my book. I made my book. Your job is to make a movie. Make this into a film. And he made them go back and, and rewrite it to their own, make it their own. Um, and I think that is a beautiful thing, going back to that humanity in him, is that he wanted them to be artists, not to be um, mimickers. Well, and even he, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, just he, he's awesome, I guess. I don't know. I didn't have an <laughs> end of that sentence. Well, <laughs> I guess it, 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 fall, it falls pretty close to, to the reason why I think, I think Death as a TV show would be great. Because that's that's the one of the the, the, the quintessential things about Death as a character in the Sandman series, and um, when she takes on her own series, is that um, you know it's I, I forget which issue of Sandman I think it's seven or eight or something like that where it's 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 described who and why Death is what she is, um, and you know she takes on mortal form once a century um, and lives the life of a mortal to understand what losing the things in life is all about. Um, you know, and that, and that's why I think the, the the show would be so interesting. It's it's an, an immortal an immortal entity who's lived for eons, who is discovering things for the first time. Like I remember one of the things that 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 was really funny to me in in the high cost of living was when she eats uh, you know hot dogs from a street vendor for the first time. There's there's a magic to the discovery that I think is really really amazing, um, and I think that there's there's you know, even in what you're describing now, like there's, 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 there's a magic to that. So, yeah. I think that one of the fascinating things about Neil Gaiman, going back, we've used the word simplicity a lot. Um, anybody can kind of jump into the stuff he does, but it doesn't mean that there's not layers. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that is the real, um, one of the great arts that I've always thought is to be able to create something that has multiple layers, to quote the, um, the donkey and Shrek, you know, onions got layers. Uh, it's you got to really understand how much of a gift that is. Most people only write or create at one layer or one level. Um, so to create something simple that people can go into, but then also, you know, you've got uh, college girls reading this uh, Sandman comics for the first time. Um, not to say that college girls are um, unintellectual. I'm just saying that uh, they might not be interested in that stuff for the most part at that time, just like college boys wouldn't be. Um, we're usually more interested in um, drinking and partying and um, being out of the house for the first time. Sure. So to capture that imagination of, of, of people 
not even just uh, women, but people in general at that age, that um, the last place they want to be doing or last thing they want to be doing is sitting somewhere reading. But they are. And at the same time, to capture that audience, you also get uh, quoted by a quote from Norman Mailer, one of the great intellectuals of our time, some would say. And he called Sandman a comic strip for the intellectuals. So, um, and I, I know that uh, all those, what's really great about that is those girls who are reading it for the first time um, and those boys reading it for the first time when they're young were reading it because it was fun. But it, because of that complexity, it's grown up with them. I know um, several women who will tell me right, right now that their favorite thing in the world is Sandman. Mm-hmm. And because it's grown with them. As they matured as adults and as they um, matured in life and life changed, that was something they could go back to because it wasn't just that simple thing. And that, that's a magic to be able to do that, to capture somebody at a young age and grow with them. And influence them, or even realizing the 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 you know it's 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 the thing you say about layers. Um, going back to death, you know, I'm going to beat death to death. Um, <laughs> is is the layers the the complexity? I mean, when you when I read this initially, I was you know in my teenage years, um, and there's the, I could understand the journey of discovery. I could understand the preciousness of life, and and the excitement of 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 discovering things for the first time, you know, because I mean, obviously for everyone in that age, you know, when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, you're, you're becoming an adult. You're seeing a much bigger pond all of a sudden. And now you're this tiny fish in a huge pond with so many other fish. Um, and now in my older age, having, having, uh, researched, um, for this podcast, I went back and can you hear me? I can't hear you anymore. Hello. Hello. Ah, you're back. You disappeared for a moment. Oh, that's weird. I'm totally leaving that in. Now, <laughs> uh, where where did I get cut off? Uh, only about 15 seconds ago. So just okay. reiterate. Okay. So basically, the, the high cost of living. When I was a kid, and I a kid. When I was a, a late teen, early early adult. You know, it's about discovering, and it's about discovering with death. But now, um, looking back at it as an adult, you know, having read it again. Um, for the, the sake of this podcast, I suddenly realized how weirdly sad it is because now I understand mortality. Now, now I don't have that, that young arrogance or that, that, it, you know, invincibility that I had with that, that comes with youth. And now I'm understanding what it would be like to lose these things. So the fact that you, you said the layers thing is very pertinent to what, what I've been feeling lately about going back and reading a lot of this stuff, you know, all the Sandman stuff, um, American gods, good omens for me. Now it's not about discovery, um, or, or in the case of American gods, for example, it's not about intrigue anymore. It's about loss. It's about losing things. Um, and it's about, about, losing yourself, like American gods in particular, for example, it's about having to reshape your identity to a world that might have passed you by. And, and the themes are so much more far reaching, um, that it makes me feel, it it makes me wonder how much of it was done on purpose. And then of course I realize it's Neil Gaiman and I realize that all of it was done on purpose and it was always done on purpose. And that to me is incredible of an idea. And I think that that's something that people don't realize as well as going back to what we were saying at the beginning, the idea of something simple. That's the power of simple idea has. Um, when you get too elaborate with ideas, 
you narrow them down so much that they can't do exactly what that did for you. Um, when something stays simple, it is, it's able to be um, shifted into different circumstances. It's be able to, uh, to interpret it different ways. It's able to grow. It's able to breathe. It's able to morph. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's a very, very powerful thing. And when you go back and you look at all great literature, in some degree, they're all, to some degree, they're all based on something very simple. Um, there, was a, there was a great, I think it was a Tumblr for a while. Um, I won't be able to find it because I don't think it exists anymore, so it won't be in show notes. But it was basically um, a challenge. I guess there was a challenge done once, and then somebody made a Tumblr of it, uh, of taking um, great novels, uh, the plots of great novels, and then boil them, boil them down to one idea, one sentence. Um, we may have mentioned this before. I think um, we have, yeah. Like the Odyssey was uh, Man Goes Home From Work. Yeah, um, we've definitely mentioned that before because I, I literally remember you saying that exact sentence. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, the, that's the power of a simple idea. Plus, it's, I mean, it's focused too. You know, you're, you, you've written before. The more complex your idea gets, the harder it is for you to keep it lassoed together. Sure. Um, you've got to have that focus. You know, I talked about it in our last episode, the idea of the character's want. That's a focus. Having a focus, knowing what your character wants and what they need, those are, those are things that keep you reined in. And those are important things. If you, um, There's a great book called Start With Why, which is um, not about art. and It's actually more um, entrepreneur business type book but way better than that there's a great ted talk the guy did too but basically in start with why he says that everything you do should have a clear defined why and then everything should stem from that and i, I feel like that is I've, I've taken that idea since i read that and i've really worked on that in my own art you know he says um there's if you can't tell somebody what something is in a sentence or two it's too complex it's already ruined Mm. And I've I've seen that before where people tell me, oh, I'm working on a novel or I'm working on a film. And I'd say what it's about. And if the first words that are out of their mouth are, well, it's kind of hard to explain, I know it will never get made. Sure. Because they don't have a handle on it. And if you as a creator don't have a handle on an idea, you know, Neil Gaiman, he could tell you everything in one sentence. Guarantee it. And it's it's the same thing where you say, what is your book about? It's about a guy who loses his wife and then starts losing his mind. Boom. There's a novel. Anybody who wants to write that, go ahead. You got an idea. Told you ideas are a dime a dozen. But get that one focus. Get that one point and hold that one point as you develop everything off of it. You know, it's like the tree. You got to have the trunk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and ever since we started talking about that, that for me is a very important aspect of, of any of the stuff that I'm, I'm doing these days creatively as well is, you know, and for me, it's not about a statement necessarily as much as it is about a question, which is, um, you know, what if I ask what if a lot these days, and I feel like the, the what if question is, is such a great catalyst for creation. Um, and I feel like if you can't, if you struggle with definition, which I think I do, uh, when it comes to defining a certain piece of art, then start with a question instead. And, and whatever it, whatever it is, I guess the key is that it has to be simple, that the, the process in coming up with the idea itself has to be inherently simple. And if it's not, it's never, ever going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, 
Tony Robbins says this a lot. He says all thought is question. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I definitely think that there's a lot of truth to that idea of what is the question you're asking? Are you asking the right questions? And if you're not, then who knows? Like, that's that focus. If you don't have that focus, what what is creation? You know, it, it is bringing something into the world. That's what it is. I can boil mm-hmm. that complex, abstract idea down to one thing. Do you find do you find that you start projects that way? Uh, I I almost always start projects with exactly like everybody else says with a little grain. You know, there's a little nugget. Sometimes I I get uh, I get I have a weird dream, and I wake up and I write the dream down. But the and it's not about trying to replicate the dream, but there's a clear image of something in that dream, um, like a woman putting on her pants. Sounds like a weird thing, but it might. It was a dream I had last night, and I had a story that that idea that came from that. Just oh, I know what that story is. So you write that down, and then one day, you know, if you don't use digital things, I I put these things in on index cards, and then just one day you flip through the index card and you go, which idea sounds like something? Oh, this is interesting, and maybe you find two and you put them together. I don't know. It's just seeds. You know, Lamb, you plant the seed and you water it. And I feel like a lot of people ignore the fact that there are seeds all around them all the time, too, is that, you know, I, I, people, especially artists, um, and, and I feel like artists fall into this trap as they get older is the, you know, the, the running theme, I guess, for a lot of what we're talking about is at what point is something good? Um, and for me lately, um, because of the research that we've been doing and because of the, the artists we've been researching, I, I don't even ask that question anymore. Um, and it frees me up to do so many cooler things. Um, like on my day-to-day uh, exploits through the world, for example, I now see cool things everywhere. I see cool moments between, you know, a dog and a child or, or two people at a Starbucks or, or, you know, a man and a woman trying to, to cross a bridge. You know, they're there's magic in the world that we live in if we can accept that it doesn't have to be good or bad. Um, and I feel like there's, there's, there's such a powerful lesson to be learned in that as an idea that, that, that frees you up to see the world in such a, a fresh and childish way. And I guess a, a lot of what, what I'm trying to say is what it, what it comes down to for me is taking the responsibility out of art and, and making art for the sake of itself, the responsibility, if that makes sense. So I don't care about doing something good anymore. I just care about doing things. Exactly. And I think like going back to the idea of that image and magic around you, that's why I have a pocket notebook and a pen on me at all times, because I could see one thing and I write that down. Who knows what that'll be? Maybe it'll become something. Maybe it'll be a painting. Maybe it'll be a detail that I need for a scene in a book later, or maybe It'll just be something that I wrote down on a piece of paper, and the next time I look at it, it'll make me smile. Sure. Who cares? Yeah. I'm not writing it down with a purpose. I'm writing it down because it's cool, and I'm acknowledging that it's cool. It's 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 like living with gratitude. And oh, that's acknowledge, amazing. <laughs> acknowledge the things around you. Uh, that's the key to happiness, right? Is, Ugh, is and and this is why I think death has to be made. You just define the entire series and her character in one sentence. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. It. It's so good. Uh, it's about, <laughs> it's about, it, it, for me, it's about a question, which is, would you miss it if it were gone? 
And and I think that that's that's such a an amazing question for everybody to ask, and it, it's it's an amazing question because it leads you to realize how special the world you live in really is, regardless of how how good or bad or how difficult things may be. Um, there's always magic in the world around you, and if you take a moment just to appreciate it for what it is, I mean, and and this all sounds like a bunch of hippie garbage, and I, I understand that, but it's really true. You know, it's it's really really true. Um, the people you have in your life, the the fact that we can do research on a guy like Neil Gaiman, um, and look at all of his work, and 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 see all of his all of his inspirational stuff, and then our ability to record our thoughts on it in the form of a podcast and share it with the world, all of those things are such magical things. Um, and, and, and the fact that we can do that, um, without a recording studio, with just our phones and post it on websites that we can manage ourselves. I mean, we live in such an amazing time and I'm sure throughout history, you can, you can say that at pretty much every point in history in some way, but for us, for where we are right now, for what you and I are both doing, we have the world as we need it to create the things that we want to create and to share them with as many people as we can. And it's all about that lens. And it's all about the questions you ask. You know, because you could do the same thing in the opposite. You can go back through history and say, wow, things have always been horrible. Politics have always sucked. Uh, the end of the world always felt like it was around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> and all of those are true. Go back and read, you know, some history. And you'll find it. You'll think of during World War II, people didn't think that the world was going to end. They didn't think that there was... A, after the Holocaust, people didn't think there was, uh, there's no hope for humanity. It's all about the questions you ask. It's all about that. That is the ultimate act of creation is the creation of the story of your own life. And I, like Lamb said, this can all seem like hippie garbage to you. Go 10, 15 years with anxiety. Go 10, 15 years miserable with self-loathing. You'll be begging for hippie wisdom. <laughs> you will be because there's nothing cool about suffering. There's nothing cool about me being miserable. There's nothing cool about hating yourself. And, but I feel like, but, but I feel like people people feel like that's a badge of honor, and they have to do that. And the, the older I get, the more the more I realize that that's absolute nonsense. That is just garbage. That's that's, that's a bad way of thinking. That's absolutely fear, and it's the it's, fear of, of of being the best version of yourself that you can be. Because there's a responsibility that comes along with that. Yes. you know, to be to be positive is to 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 share your positivity with the world. And there's there's there, that's that's something that people are scared to do. <laughs> it's a vulnerability too sure you know you're not only vulnerable to other people you're vulnerable to failure well guess what failure is always going to happen people whether you're creating things or whether you're just living your life you're always going to hit some speed bump you're always going to run into a wall you're always going to smash your toe you're going to break the lead in your pencil it's going to happen so learn to live with it and learn to celebrate it learn to learn from it and grow from it and stop all of the negative stuff that's preventing you you know, when you when people say, oh, I should go make this, I should make this painting, you know what they're saying is, I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid to. I'm avoiding it. If you want to do something, do it right this second. Turn off this podcast and go do it right now. I don't care if you listen to the end of this. I really don't. I want you guys to go and do things. Be, Make the world a better place. Make your life happier by creating. Like I said, not only pieces of, of things that you put into the world, but your own life and your own story. If you want to be a writer, be a writer. You don't have to decide whether you're good or not. Like I said, that's what the world will decide. And you know what? They can be wrong. 
the whole world can say you suck and you feel good about what you did, that's all that will matter because you'll be happy. That's why creativity is inherently generous. That's time number seven. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like you hit the nail on the head um, when it comes to, to why you and I have been doing this for the better part of a year and some months now. And, and the reason why is because we want to not just inspire people. I think that's, that's too, that's too, too broad a way of, broad a way of saying it. Um, I think ultimately when I, when I define this podcast for what it is to me, um, it's about removing fear and it's about making that fear irrelevant because it isn't, it isn't relevant. You know, if you take some of the most successful people in the world, and we've talked about this a little bit as well. Um, and I'm, I'm going to leave the art realm and, and, and look at guys like Elon Musk, for example, or, you know, any of any, any of the really, really successful guys. And, and, and one thing that, that you find as a running thread through all of them is they never do or don't do anything out of fear. They never do or don't do anything about, you know, over a lack of confidence or, or, or any, they just do because it was there to do. And I think that that is the most telling lesson with all of the artists that we've talked about, including Neil Gaiman is he doesn't do or not do something because, because of, because he feels like he can or he can't, you know, the exception, um, to that rule for him was the graveyard book. And even he, um, admits at some point that, you know, it didn't matter. He was never going to be good enough to write it. So he's just going to write it as who he is, as, as what he is, and as skilled as he is at the moment in which he wrote it. And I feel like that's, that's the lesson that, that we try to, to impart on all of you, not from us, because, you know, we're just, we're, we're just the guys delivering the message, but that every single successful artist just does because it was there to do and not because, um, they wanted to, 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 to achieve something or fight a fear or whatever it may be. It was just there and the pen was there or the computer was there or the paintbrush was there. And the next step that they took was just to make the thing that they could out of whatever medium it was that they had at their disposal. And that's living life. That is life. Uh, when, when you, when you sit in the, in the, in the bleachers waiting for the next inning, you're, you're not living, you're waiting. You know, what, what, is, what was it that John Lennon said? Life is what happens while you're making plans. Right? <laughs> yeah. Where, where did he say that? I remember that one. That was, that was said during an interview, wasn't it? Yeah. I don't remember. The man said so many awesome things. That's true. But, but the thing is people is guess what? Tomorrow's another day. It's one day closer to you being dead. So there's, there's time passing, and that's not to be morbid. It's a fact. We all move closer to that every day. So live every day. Enjoy every day. You, you really want to die wondering if you could have wrote that novel? It would be so much better to write it and have it be crappy. Yeah. Because at least you would say, I tried. And guess what? It won't ever be as bad as you think it is as long as you take your ego out of it and you're willing to hone it and perfect it and to learn. And to move on to the next thing and hope that that's a little bit better. And, you know, it's it's funny that you say that because it's the moment in which you do that first piece. You know, I remember how much I struggled when I was a, a young kid writing poetry and into my young adulthood writing poetry. Is the, the, My best poetry was written long after I'd been at it for years um, when I suddenly realized that it didn't matter whether it was good or bad. Um, all that mattered was that it was true. And I guess there's, there's a certain, there's a certain lesson to be learned in that too, is that if it's true to you, then that, that makes it important enough to, to, to do whether, um, your medium is writing or, or photography or, 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 or painting or whatever it may be. 
it's your truth it's your life and it's your world and the 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 gift of sharing it with other people is in and of itself important enough for you to create it take yourself out of it (laughs) you're just the vessel for communicating the message the message itself is in what you create that's like like when i look back at my first book um erectile dysfunction right i look back at that book and i don't think I mean, there's part of me that looks back at it and goes, it could be better. But that's, you know, the reason I, I can think that is because I've gotten better. Because I'm a better writer. Also because I don't write much poetry anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what those, that, that's how you have to start to look at the things that you're going to create. It's something that you want to be able to look back at later and know that you could do better because you're more capable. And the only way you become more capable is by doing that first thing. Yeah. My second book, whenever it comes out, hopefully next year, it will be better than my first one. I know that because I already know I'm a better writer. But I wouldn't have that measuring stick. I wouldn't have got to that place if I hadn't written the first one. Um, actually, I'm going to tell you an interesting story real quick that I've never told anyone um, other than uh, me and Eric and Sarah, who were all there at the time. This is an example of failure and how failure is going to happen no matter how hard you try it. It's about that book. There's two funny things about that book. Number one, there's a typo in there. There's a big typo in there, and none of us noticed it. We edited that book probably hmm, 20 times each, gone through it at least that many times, not to mention all the times I went through it when I was writing it and going through drafts. Um, You get to a certain point with editing where you get snow blind and you just don't see anything. Sure. So number one, as hard and as much work as I put into that, I still failed to make a perfect book. I have a typo. Second thing, the title. Hmm, guess what? Eric and I had no idea that dysfunction was spelled with a Y. So the first mock-ups of the book that we had sent to the publisher was spelled D-I-S function instead of D-Y-S function. So huge typo on the cover of the book. And the first, <laughs> first thing we started doing was how can we make this work to our advantage? Sure. (laughs) But then at a certain point, we realized, no, we just need to edit and resend. And I think we had to pay a fee to have it fixed or whatever. Um, But the thing is, the important lesson that I learned from that experience was not that failure wasn't going to happen. It's how we dealt with it. And I didn't even realize how well we dealt with it at the time. Because the first thing we started asking was, how can we make this work? We got creative. And that's, that's, that's the whole lesson of everything. Creativity doesn't, doesn't just end with the, the act of that one creation. Creativity is everything outside of that too. Learning to adapt and learning to work things. And it's a point of view. It's the way you look at the world. If you see the world with magic like Lam was saying, then you're never going to be stuck. You're never going to be... Uh, You're never going to look at something and say, I don't have time for that. You're never going to look at it and say, I don't know how to do that. I'm not good enough. Because you'll find a way to make time. You'll find a way to get good enough. You'll find a way to do it because it's important to you. Make creativity important. And I think um, one one of the lessons that comes out of that for me, too, is that you know, we, as we get older and older, um, you know, it's that, that whole, that whole thing about, um, if you haven't skydived by a certain age, you never will because your brain starts to build in things like risk assessment and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
I feel like lately because of the podcast and because of some of the other things that I'm doing, I, nothing's impossible anymore. And I think the more creative things you do, the, the less you see things as being impossible. And, and, and there's an amazing, there, there's an amazing freedom that that gives you a, a, a disassociation from fear. Um, because I feel like, you know, as you get older, you start to become just more afraid of things. And I, I, I assume that that all boils down to a fear of mortality, but you know, the, the more you can free yourself from that fear, the more you allow yourself to see the world for what it really is, the magical, wonderful place that it is in all of its, in all of its majesty and intricacy. Um, so I, I, you know, and it's a running theme in our podcast too. We talk about it quite a bit, which is the crippling, the, 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 the crippling effect of fear on not just creativity, but in life. Um, and I feel like doing things like writing or, or, or anything inherently creative is practice for removing fear from your, your own life. Um, and practice at, at taking down all of the barriers that fear creates because they build up over time. You know, they become defense mechanisms. They become justifications for inaction. And, and I feel like the more creative things you do, the more you remove those from existence. And impossibility is, it's a choice. It's sure. a choice you've made to believe something's impossible. I would say that um, of everybody, that every creative person that I've known in my life, maybe everybody, if I were if I were able to rewind and listen to their language, I can tell you whether they were going to fail or succeed mm. because of their language. When 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 you go into something with a negative um, connotation in your language, you've already made the decision to fail, so you will fail. Because what you ask for, you will receive because you will bring it to life. And that's going back to what you were saying, people like Elon Musk. You know why Elon Musk is successful? Not because he's a genius. Not because he thinks of things that other people don't think of. Not because he has ideas that nobody else has. Not because he has resources that other people don't have. And, and not because of anything else, but because of one thing. He keeps trying. Yeah. I want to do this. I did this, I failed. 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 And every time he's scoping closer. Going back to the great story of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison, he, he they say, was 9,900 times. Uh, he was trying to invent the light bulb, and it, it blew up in his face, literally. And he started, his friend was there, and he starts writing in his notebook. And he says, he says are you going to give up? You know, like, you failed again. And he says, I didn't fail. He says, number one, he says, I, I, I haven't failed. I'm still working at it. I've learned 999 or 9,999 ways not to make the light bulb. And that explosion was interesting because maybe that, knowing how to make that explosion will come in handy at a later point. Understanding your goal, moving towards that mountain. Well, I guess from the Edison example, the, the one magical piece of, of wisdom that we can take out of that is when in doubt, blow up your life. Yeah. And also never underestimate Nikola Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's, let's I, close this yeah, episode out. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was a good place to, to shut it down. God, we didn't do it again. We didn't announce uh, who it is. Oh, I guess we're doing that in the mid-episodes now. I'm leaving this part in because I'm not done yet. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, we're leaving. I'm. I'm gonna leave in all the boo boos from now on. I want people to hear the real. What's uh, really going it's, on? It's more fun. I like it. Um, so, a couple things I want to say before we close out this episode completely. 
which is uh, we now have a subreddit. I did a lot of thinking about places where you guys could go and actually communicate with each other and with us in a better way. And I realized that most social medias um, are not really good at that. They're not really built around um, communication and community. Most of them are built around um, validation and liking. So um, being able to have a thread underneath something, um, the ability for people to share. I'm going to put the subreddit in the notes. Come check us out. Leave some stuff. I've been putting up a little bit of stuff there. Um, I want you guys to put stuff up there. This is, a, I want the, this creativity place. I, I want, I'm going to put up things from the show notes there. I, I don't know. If you guys want to talk to each other and, you know, inspire each other, this would be a cool place to do it. And Reddit doesn't cost any money, so that seems cool. And then, um, Lamb, is there anything you want to say before I mention the last thing? Um, the Instagram. Um, I am slowly but surely trying to figure out what makes the most sense when it comes to content. Um, and so what I'd like to start doing is kind of getting content from the world. Um, so anyone who's following our Instagram, um, you know, show me cool stuff, show me creative stuff, tag us in things. Um, use the hashtag random badassery. If you find something that's really interesting in the world that you want us to see, or actually use use the at symbol instead of the hashtag so he yeah. doesn't have to search for it. Yeah, absolutely. Or or directly tag us with the at symbol um, in order for us to get to it as well. Um, because I would, you know, like Chad says, the, 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 the irony of social media is, is not very, very social. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't tools that we can use to make it at least more social or more useful. Um, so, yeah, if you guys see anything cool in the world, please share it with us. Yeah, and if you guys, you know, some of you guys out there are graphic designers... You want to design some uh, phone wallpapers for us that we will share with the world? We'll totally do that. Or if you want to design uh, desktop wallpapers, um, you know, with with creativity is inherently generous or anything like that. You guys want to create and share with us? We will share it with the world. And um, also, I, I, I just, if you're an artist and you want to draw something, Hey, you want to make fun of us a little bit? Good, good-natured fun and draw a cartoon of us? Cool. Send it to us. I want to that see would it. Be, that'd be awesome. I would love to see myself in cartoon form, actually. You want a, you want a short story? You want to write a short story? Um, I don't know. Like that, And that's one of the things, too, that, that I want to happen on the Reddit is um, not just stuff related to us. You know, like, so if somebody writes a short story and they want to share it with other creative people, cool. You can totally put that on the subreddit. And that's what I want it to be. I want it to be a place for people to um, focus on creativity. And lastly, the most important thing, of course, we always plug other stuff, but the most important thing is this podcast. Um, thank you for listening. Totally stoked that you're here. I hope you got something out of this episode. And if you did, do us a favor. Go onto iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, where, whatever place you get your podcasts from, and review us. Um, because that is literally one of the only ways that we can get more viewers. Um, and I want to help more people to bring their life into a more creative place. And I, and I shouldn't say I, we, we want that. Um, so please give us, give us a rating. Um, Hey, even if you didn't like this, I'll take a one star. I don't care. <laughs> I love to hear, I love to hear your feedback. Um, I'm not afraid of that. I'm, I'm proud of what I do. And I know lamb is too. Um, but we'll take whatever ratings you guys have. Just uh, take a moment. Um, if you made it this far into the episode, then you're probably somebody that's I, I would think is going to give us good review because I wouldn't listen to two hours of something I didn't like. Sure. <laughs> and uh, Lamb, anything you want to say? 
Um, no, I, I, I think that's the, I, I, we have to put our money where our mouth is. So yeah, if you have criticisms or if you have things you want to say to us that are uh, both good or bad or things you feel like we can change, please, please share them with us. Um, we would love to hear input of any kind. Um, because you know, for both Chad and I, if we treat this like conversations, I'm, I'm assuming that he and I would have this conversation whether or not we were doing a podcast. So um, you know, anything that you guys want to hear or a certain change you want in the format or certain things you want to do, um, like ask certain questions or whatever it may be, um, please share that with us as well. And you can use, um, any of our, our avenues, whether it's the Reddit or the Instagram or the Twitter account or whatever it may be, um, to please share them with us. Um, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll take the, the suggestions under advisement and, uh, change when we feel like it's necessary and not change if we feel like it's not. And also, you know, the newsletter went out. We went out with the first time for the newsletter. Um, it's just three random things that um, it's called the Random Digs newsletter. It's uh, you sign up for it by following our publication on um, Medium. Ran out of words there, <laughs> <laughs> and that went out. So we, we got that going too. So if you're interested in that stuff, it's a short one. It's short, couple sentences from each of us about why we're recommending what we're recommending. And it's only stuff that we use or love that's inspiring us or helping us be more creative. So we would love to, uh, the viewership or the listenership is going up. I know there's more of you listening. So we'd love to hear from you guys. Um, and uh, like I said, give us a rating because that would be rad. 